How's it going, everyone? My name is Chris Hagan. This is Above the Standard, the podcast brought to you by Barbell Battalion. Uh, if you haven't already, please check us out on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok. Give us a like. Give us a follow. The podcast can be found by searching Above the Standard on Apple and Spotify for their podcasts. Today, I'm really excited. Today, we talk with Dr. Anthony Kyoto. Uh, he's a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician at the University of Michigan, where he also serves as a professor. Dr. Kyoto is the co-director for the University of Michigan Spinal Cord Injury Model System. And today, we talk about the impact what our job puts on the head, neck, and spine. That's what we, we go after today. We talk about the helmet, the SCBA, those lift assists. We talk about being obese. We talk about you know improper diet and, and how all of that relates to the health and the wellness of our head, neck, and spine. So please, I had so much fun talking with this guy. He's so, so smart and so informative. Uh, so please give it up for Dr. Anthony Kyoto. All right, and we're recording. Um, my name is uh, Chris Hagen. This is uh, the podcast Above the Standard. Today we're joined with, uh, is it Dr. Anthony, is it Kyoto? That's correct. Kyoto. And uh, among uh, among many things, uh, you're the medical director for the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Clinic at the uh, Burlington Building, uh, the Spine Program, and the Spinal Cord Injury Program. Is that all through University of Michigan? It is. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, first off, uh, doctor, uh, I, I want to thank you so much for, uh, taking the time, uh, to, to join us today. And I, am sure you have a pretty, uh, busy and kind of hectic schedule with, uh, being a professor in your own practice. So I just want to thank you so much for, uh, taking the time today. My pleasure. Um, so doctor, if you could, so what, what is, uh, what is your specialty and uh, kind of how did you get started with that? So um, I'm a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation and as, with respect to this this podcast, I'm also board certified in pain medicine, um, and um, I take care of patients with uh, you know spine pain, so neck pain and back pain most commonly, and obviously back pain is the most common reason that people go to see their doctor because of a pain complaint. So it's a very very common problem, and uh, I've. It's been an area that's in my practice since I started, but when I was, uh, I was worked out in New Mexico for a period of time, and there were uh, a lot of people who worked out in the uh, oil industry, lots of injuries, lots of, you know, physically demanding work, and uh, so saw a lot of patients with back pain. Um, and the, so the reason uh, I reached out to you is one, you know, we're we're relatively local. I, I live about half hour north of Detroit. Um, I've been a fireman for 14 years, um, and one of the the, the biggest um, injury, uh, one of the biggest injuries that we see uh, is is related to the spine and back injuries. And when I started reading uh, a little bit up on you, I thought this would be such a um, a positive and uh, easy reach to kind of take some uh, expert uh, opinion and and knowledge that that you bring uh, kind of into our our position. So the fire service, I'm sure you know, divided up mainly into two subsets. So you have emergency medical response and uh, fire suppression, and both of which come with a pretty um, uh, intense level of uh, physical exertion 
but in different complements. Uh, on the EMS side, we're frequently called, and this has actually been on the rise for quite some time, is is lifting patients up off the ground. A lot of these uh, tend to be uh, geriatric patients and uh, a lot of times obese patients that uh, have fallen over. And a big part of this is getting them loaded onto a stretcher, getting them to uh, an emergency an emergency room, and then it comes this time where you have to transfer the patient over to the hospital bed. And it's this kind of arduous, a little bit rough and tumble way of just kind of leaning over the bed and, and, and pulling and pushing uh, the patient. And so on the, on the, on the other end on fire suppression, you have a, uh, a job that we all know is, is physically demanding, but uh, so much of your um, uh, positioning is not just standing. You kind of have a uh, a very heavy backpack, a scuba tank, an SCBA that's anywhere between 25 and 40 pounds, and you have a large, awkward uh, helmet on top of your head. And what I wanted to talk to you about is in, in, in respect to the self-contained breathing apparatus, the air pack, and also the helmet, um, what sorts of impacts... Um, can can you expect to find just just with wearing those um, in in the uh, in the field that you that you work in? So the helmet, um, uh, my my biggest concern would be is what impact it has on on the neck, on the the cervical spine. Um, those the cervical spine is, you know, relatively uh, more fragile because the bones are smaller, the joints are smaller, the discs are smaller, um, and so they're they're going to be, you know, taking on a lot of additional stress if you've got a helmet on. Plus, with the helmet, when you, you know, start moving your head, that's actually going to add the. It's not just the weight of it, but it's also the torque with the motions and rotation and and bending that that put on your neck. We don't do a. You know, when we're young, we do a lot of you know playing and running outside and those kinds of things, and we naturally get a lot of strengthening for all of our core muscles, including our neck muscles. Um, as we get older, we tend not to do those activities. We tend to do a lot of our activities, a lot of our exercise um, where we're not really putting a lot of stress on our, on our, our neck muscles. Um, and so they don't get the strengthening that they did when we were you know, young and playing sports. So um, we know that in thinking about preventing neck injuries and people who have neck injuries, how do you, you know, rehabilitate them and keep them from having a, another injury? That neck strength is a really important uh, fa- factor. So, um, so one way to pre- you know prevent injuries from the from the uh, from this use of of the of the helmet is to to keep your keep your neck strong. Uh, with regard to the backpack, the, the plus side is that it, you're carrying that weight in the right position. You're, you're, you know, you're carrying that weight over your shoulders and behind you. Um, when you have that weight behind you, you're going to tend to lean forward a little bit, take some of the uh, just to uh, um, make up for the weight that's behind you so you don't feel like you're tipping back all the time. 
And in being that position, it does take some stress off of the joints in the low back. If you're in that hyperextended position all the time, your back does not like it because then you're starting to put a lot more weight on the joints in your back rather than on the vertebrae themselves. Um, but wearing the backpack behind you tends to put you in that better position. Um, so if you have to carry weight, the place you're carrying it with regard to the backpack is the right place. So with uh, a helmet weighing upwards of, 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 of eight maybe eight plus pounds, and again, that uh, that the air pack weighing you know upwards of 40 at, uh, of, of a, a, a busy department, um, uh, an urban uh, area of Detroit, Chicago, uh, any in, in departments that are kind of on their sprawling metropolitan areas, um, for a, car- a career wise uh, of doing that sort of re- repeated activity um, in that same sort of wear, if there is no sort of um, preventative maintenance, if there is no emphasis on developing um, neck strength and, and, and core strength and, 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 and the, all the muscles around the, the spine, what, what injuries are, are, could you see developing from uh, the consistent wear and tear uh, in, re- in relation to those two things? Yeah. So the, the two structures that take the most, uh, most of that wear and tear are the, are the discs, and, and the joints. Um, with the helmet, it, it would be both. Uh, eight pounds isn't a lot, but, you know, relative to the size of, you know, the weight of the head, it's a you know, significant increase in the amount of uh, compression that you're putting on the, on, on the discs and with motion, additional stress on the joints. And so you'll have to see arthritis of the of the joints and narrowing of the discs. When those two things happen together, usually you end up with some narrowing of the, of the channels where the nerves are trying to come out between the vertebrae. And so you end up pinching nerves and causing pain down the arm. Uh, but you can also end up just with, with pain in the neck. With the, uh, with the backpack, I, you know, I think the biggest issue is the impact on the joints and the low back. And, and with that, you end up with, with, uh, with back pain. Uh, later in life, if, if this accumulates over you know, 30 and 40 years, again, you'll run into the problem that with that arthritis of the joints, it narrows the channel where the nerves are trying to come out of your back. And then you start having you know, pain radiating down your leg that's worse when you're up and standing and walking, uh, carrying a backpack and walking up and down uh, an incline. Um, so those would be the kind of things that I would expect that you would see over time with using that type kind of equipment. For um, either rehabilitation or trying to ha- be, be more proactive in, in preventing the arthritis and the narrowing of the, the, the channels, what, what uh, exercises or um, uh, what uh, evolutions can people do uh, to, to begin that strength work um, uh, on their uh, head, neck, and spine. Sure. So, um, so the key is is strength and also maintaining range of motion. So, you know, doing flexibility exercises, exercises by stretching through the full range of motion. Um, for the the neck, it would be predominantly the neck, but also maintaining good range of motion of the shoulder. 
Usually when we want to reach and do things, if there's restriction in the shoulder, we take a lot of additional stress in our neck. So maintaining good range of motion in your shoulder is important. Uh, in terms of flexibility of the low back, it's, it's you know, the muscles of the low back at themselves, but it's also the hips. Hamstrings and hip flexors are really important in terms of getting the correct biomechanics of the low back. And tightness of the hamstring is real common. Um, so, so that's something that's, that definitely is worth uh, working on. It takes a lot of the stress off the back if the, the hips are adequately flexible so that you can do most of that motion uh, at your hips. Just strengthening, you really want to work on, on all the core muscles. You want to work on the, the muscles uh, across the upper back and the rib cage. You know, kind of a, the strengthening would be kind of a rowing motion that would work on strengthening. So strengthening your, your lats would be really important. Um, improve, maximizing the strength of your gluteal muscles, so hip extensors and hip abductor strength. Um, working on abdominal strength, which, of course, we all really love because it's so stressful. Um, it's one of the, probably one of the most least liked and appreciated exercises, and yet it's the most important, is keeping the abs strong. And then working on, you know, maintaining strength of the low back as well. Um, In terms of strengthening for the neck, really isometrics works probably works as well as anything because then you're not working through a range of motion. You're actually just working on neck tightening against, you know, put your hand up against the forehead, against the back of the head and side to side and really work on on maximizing the strength of, of the, mus the muscles that uh, run along the neck. One of the things that uh, you just hit on it was was something that that i had never even heard of um and, until a couple of years ago and there's a i don't know if you've ever heard of him he's an ultra marathon runner a navy seal and just this crazy um individual david goggins and he is just this this machine uh among men and one of the things that he was discussing in in his book and and some other uh, mediums was he started developing um this intense lower back pain this crushing lower back pain and um and it really had he said it had nothing to do with anything spine related it had uh when he went to see various physicians um they they all pointed to the hip flexor muscle and it it, it kind of took off and, and it kind of dove into um this and is it, it it's it's, this, it's the psoas muscle correct yes um so that's the first time I had ever really heard, um, and probably just a, a, a testament to maybe my my um, uh, incompetence in that field as well, I guess. But what, why is the hip um, flexor muscle um, so important? And do you find it um, that the patients that you see um, kind of share that same sort of um, uh, knowledge base or lack thereof when it comes to? Um, um, utilizing and, and maintaining that muscle group. So, yeah. So, so the hip flexors are important because if the hip flexors are tight, that means you're going to be relatively uh, flex forward at the hips, which means that your nose is pointing at the ground. And the way to counteract that is you want to raise your head up, which means you're tilting your neck back and also you're tilting your low back. 
back in a sway back or lordotic posture. That puts a lot of stress on the joints in the neck and in the low back. Um, so keeping the hip flexors flexible allows you to be more upright and allows you to have, uh, carry your back in a more normal posture um, so that you're not adding that additional stress. I think it's really common that um, people don't know about the importance of, of flexibility around the hip with regard to, to back health. Um, it's, you know, it's not real common knowledge, certainly amongst uh, people who practice medicine, physical therapy, um, chiropractic, they really understand how those biomechanics really play a big part in making the spine more vulnerable. But uh, I, I would say it's, it's not well appreciated otherwise. And w once you get that information, though, you can, you know, you can go with it and, and, and get those areas addressed and taken care of part of your exercise program so that you've, uh, you're, you're doing a full preventive program. No, it was. Uh, it really was. Uh, it really was eye-opening to see just how um, I, much I didn't know about it. And then when I started to to stretch it and exercise it, just how um, unbelievably um, tight it was. And it was uh, stretches that were were so uncommon to me, just from a normal. I would just say kind of mundane routine, you know, gym stretching where it's just some um, emphasis on your, 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 your quads, your hamstrings, your calves, and, and maybe some, some bend over at the waist stretches, but, um, no, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, and, uh, Dr. Wynn, a, a super common injury also that, that we see, um, in, in, in the craft of firefighting, um, is just quick, spontaneous, um, you know, lower back pain, the kind of term, you know, I pulled my lower back or I pulled muscle in my back, uh, from bending over, picking something heavy up, whether it's um, a saw, a piece of equipment, uh, you know, God forbid, a person um, on the job. When when someone experiences that, they bend over and they 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 pick something up and they feel that that just rush of pain in their lower back. What's what's physically happening in the, in the body when 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 that occurs? Uh, what it, almost invariably it is, is that when you bend forward, you increase the force inside the disc by as much as seven times your body weight. It's just that. Wow, seven times. That, yeah. Wow. Because you're, you know, when you're bending forward, your head is, you know, three feet away from you. And so that adds that that distance adds torque which really increases the force inside the disc. And, and the, the structure that's gonna be the most vulnerable is gonna be the ligament that supports that disc. And it's like any other ligament. It would be like uh, when you turn your ankle and you sprain the ligaments on the outside of the ankle, it's the same kind of feeling. It's kind of an immediate pain that you feel when you've injured the structure of those ligaments. And, and just like uh, turning your ankle, you know, you can strain the ligament, which means you injure you injure it enough to cause some sort of reaction, but you actually haven't changed the you know the, you haven't actually torn any of the fibers that are supporting the that are part of that ligament. You could sprain that ligament where you've actually damaged some of the fibers, but at least the ligament is still intact and functioning. 
or you can tear that ligament. And when you tear that ligament is when you create an opening where disc material can pop out and put pressure on the nerves. And that's when you start, instead of just feeling that pain in your back, you feel pain in your back and you feel a radiating pain down the leg. And that's the sciatica that you would feel. So, so that's, the, that's probably the, the most common uh, uh, cause for pain in, in a bent over position is, is that you're actually injuring the ligament that's supporting the disc. Interesting. Um, what, uh, it, it's, it's pretty much uh, a, a common, I guess, phrase now uh, in the, the conversation of uh, uh, obesity across, uh, I mean, pretty much every, every medical field that, that's in existence, the conversation um, of, of obesity and, and its impact has, has been quite present. Um, as what what factor and what impact does uh, does increasing obesity even you know when you start entering the the realm of morbid obesity what strain and impact does that have um, on the spine? That's really interesting because one would think that we've known about this for a long time, but it's really only been in the last five years that there's you know high quality research that shows what that impact is. And, and why why is, is, why is that? I'm, it, I, I think it's just not something that's really been been studied uh, to any great extent. Okay. Okay. And uh, so what we've discovered is that it doesn't appear that that obesity increases the likelihood of developing a back pain problem, but what it certainly does do is it increases the length of recovery if you get a back problem, and it actually makes it more likely that you won't recover from a back problem. So, so be, you know, that obesity just kind of basically takes away a lot of your resilience to recovery. Um, and, and, uh, and that's where it seems to have the greatest impact. When, uh, when, when, when you're, when you're treating patients, do you see any sort of, uh, impact when it comes to, uh, either the, the, chronic or, or, or frequent use of alcohol or uh, like tobacco uh, smoking? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so certainly in terms, in terms of the social use of alcohol, not so, not so much. Uh, regular use of tobacco, we know that has, that has a significant impact on, on, on pain people who have, who, um, who are, uh, regularly use nicotine products have, um, have more persistent pain complaints. And, and we think that's because the nicotine has a, a negative impact on blood supply to healing tissues, um, because it causes, you know, narrowing or constriction of those blood vessels and that that is impacting, um, their, um, their recovery. Um, it also may result in an in, in increase overall transmission through pain fibers, um, such that the same relative condition results in an increased uh, uh, experience of pain. Wow, so, so that's next, that's crazy. Next, we know is is a negative uh, with respect to uh, to uh, pain experience. Um. What um, 
for 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 treating that pain um what uh what impact have you guys found uh in your profession um just with uh i guess in, in respect to um over the counter treatments for that not so much uh you know an opioid but uh it, for someone with chronic back pain that uh, maybe hasn't seen a physician or they're just kind of self self medicating self treating just with over the counter um medication what does uh, or is there uh, an impact or uh, uh, an effect on the body with just using um the uh, motrin acetaminophen uh NSAIDs that sort of thing yeah so so there's actually good literature that shows that for somebody with a, a acute back problem or with a you know acute flare up in somebody who has a, a chronic back issue that that anti-inflammatories are effective in, in reducing pain. Um, so so that's certainly a positive. It's interesting that we use a, a, an acetaminophen as much as we do because actually in the back pain literature there's really there there doesn't exist good literature to support the use of acetaminophen in acute low back in in acute low back pain or uh, chronic low back pain where there's a flare-up in spite of that you know because you can't use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications if you're pregnant we do recommend that uh, that that women who are pregnant try acetaminophen but mainly because it's really the only pain medication that they can use it's safe during pregnancy but for for most for most everybody else the use of medicines like ibuprofen and naproxen and um and aleve those kinds of medicines are you know those are are a reasonable uh, medicine to use if you have a, an acute flare-up of back pain um, now in, I'm trying to think how, how to phrase, um, phrase this. So, um, when I became a fireman, it was kind of at the height of, um, the, uh, the, the opioid ep- epidemic. And, um, so now looking through the lens of, of 2020 and now to, into 2021, um, for someone, uh, in, in your position, how do you, uh, how do you manage, um, treating for pain? Um, with with the with with also the 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 research I guess that's out there on opioids is there a, um, is there are there more effective uh, medications out there uh, for uh, treating for pain I guess for and I guess the reason for the question would be if uh, if someone does have that chronic pain um, and they but they also know the addictive potential um, of of opioids, what else is out there that uh, that you commonly um, uh, will uh, either prescribe or recommend or at least discuss um, in addition to the common um, painkillers out there? Well, it's interesting that uh, if you have somebody with an acute flare, um, that actually opioids, uh, studies that have looked at opioids and acute flare of back pain uh, has demonstrated that it that the opioids really has no impact on uh, time course of recovery, uh, time to return back to work, uh, or, or days off on disability. Um, but it does predict uh, uh, long-term opioid dependence. So, so it's not a real good option in 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 acute flare flare up of, of back pain actually, and, and and we've known that for a long time. 
Um, so, so, you know, when thinking about the options for treatments, the anti-inflammatories are useful because a lot of pain conditions of the spine are really driven by inflammation. And so if you can reduce inflammation, that makes a difference. If there's a significant amount of muscle spasm, we do know that in acute flare-ups of back pain that the muscle relaxants really are effective. And there is, you know, there's good evidence to support their use. Um, uh, keeping moving really is really important. Bed rest is actually very detrimental in people with back pain. And so keeping active, keeping moving, it doesn't mean, you know, necessarily exercise, but just being up and moving around and not resorting to bed rest is, is really important. Is, is it because it keeps, is it, it just keeps those muscles engaged and just strengthening over time and, and persistence with that? Yes. Yes. And, and you're maintaining proper biomechanics and not allowing muscles to get tight and not allowing muscles that tend to go into spasm because they're not being used, so allowing them to just really function normally. Um, and then if that's not effective, I'm really, you're talking now, you're days in and do you doing these things and it, you really haven't made much progress. It, then we start thinking about, you know, what kind of, you know, physical rehabilitation type things you need to do in order to, to get you, get you over the, over that, that acute flare up and start getting the path to recovery. You brought up a good point. Um, and it was a perfect segue uh, about bed rest and sleep. Um, what, uh, when someone is looking uh, for uh, um, a, a bed, somewhere we, we spend a third of our life, um, I think everyone can kind of account for or, or, or share in a story where they, you know, they, they wake up with, um, they wake up with back pain. Uh, is that just because the spine's out of alignment? Is it just not getting the proper support it needs uh, when you're uh, w- w- when you're sleeping? Um, those are some those are some really good reasons. Um, another one is especially as people get older that um, as they develop arthritis of of any joint, but certainly of the spine as well, that just being in one position for a long time is it's not uncomfortable to be in that position but when you try to move out of that position so when you're getting up in the morning it'd be very unpleasant so um so those are all those are all good reasons is there a is there a morning routine that uh, um the patients that you see that uh, you, you work through um you know more day, morning stretches um that, that sort of thing yeah, I think yeah, I think that's really important. You know, looking at that morning flexibility, uh, getting the muscles muscles uh, warmed up and limber is really important before you get off on your day. Especially if you're doing what you guys do, and that is that you know you are um, you're doing work that's physically demanding. You know, the challenge for you is that you're you know you're going to be in a you know, what, however long your day shift is going to be. And you have to be ready at any time to go. You know, if you get the call to go, you can't stop and do your stretches and get warmed up. So, so you have to stay warmed up during, during the course of your day. So again, during the course of your day, be up, be active, keep warmed up, keep limber, 
So, um, so not, me. so not being on the couch. Not. <laughs> sorry about that. No, not being on the couch. Not being because you got to be ready. Yeah. Be re- yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of like an you know an athlete who's not not in the starting five or not in the starting team. You you got to you got to be up and moving around because you got to be ready to go in because at any moment you're gonna have to go in, and you're not gonna have time to to do your your warm up routine. So you got to be warmed up before you go. What what do you recommend for um, a, a warm up period or um, a stretching period? Uh, I, I would say maybe even before before a workout. Um, what uh, what sort of things should we be like hitting, um, and for how long? Uh, if even if we're not going to do a, um, a a big kind of back exercise, if it's just going to be a long run, a cardio session, um, yeah. you know, how much time should we be spending stretching out our back? So if you so. Um... If you're going to do something at the beginning of the day, just kind of get you ready to go, you know, 10 minutes of doing something aerobic that will just warm you up. You're not doing it to get for fitness. You're not doing, I mean, 10 minutes isn't long enough for fitness, not long enough for, uh, for you know, conditioning, but it's good for a warm up. Uh, get the muscles warm. Um, and then, you, you know, then do your, you know, your, your hip, uh, hip, back and leg stretches. Uh, that program should take more than 10 minutes. So it's not, you're not asking for a long time. Um, you're just asking for long enough so that you can, you know, really be pretty limber before you, you, you take off. Um, this, this is kind of backwards on how we normally uh, do it, but doctor, what, what got you into uh, this field in the first place? I, 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 I was really interested in the musculoskeletal system and, and anatomy, and I wanted to go into a field where I would be spending a lot of time face-to-face with patients. I like interacting with people. So this worked out really well because, you know, it's really focused on conservative management of musculoskeletal problems. So I'm not spending time in, either in my training or in my workday in the operating room working on people who are under anesthesia. I'm actually in the clinic working with people one-on-one and talking with them and providing advice and assessing their needs. So and that's what I like. I like being, I like being in the clinic and working with people. What would, when you were going through your, your, your uh, education and your training, what was a, uh, a, a surprise to you? What was a, a, a kind of a, a shock or something that you just weren't anticipating or expecting when you were learning about, you know, everything related to, 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 to your field, what jumps out at you that, um, that, 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 like I said, this is, was a surprise. It's, you know, it's funny, you know, I've, I've been doing this for so long. I, I, I sometimes, because I've been doing it for so long and it's become so second nature to me, I, I forget how complicated it can be. Uh, the spine is pretty complex. There are, there are let's see, twelve, seven, five. There are you know, uh, twenty-four levels of the vertebrae. There's a disc at each level. There are two joints at each level. Um, they move differently. Uh, the thoracic spine's got the rib cage associated with it. The orientation of the joints are different because the neck moves in different ways in the low back. I mean, it's pretty complicated. But you know, once you learn it, you pretty much know what 
you know what you're doing. I'm sure that's true of, of, of your work. A lot of the things that you do, you take a second nature, but when way back at the beginning, it was like, oh my gosh, there's a lot to um, So yeah, I think that's probably the most, the most interesting part about it is being, when you're, once you're done with training and have a lot of experience, it's pretty interesting how second nature becomes. Uh, I, I read on just, just doing some little background work. Are, are you also a, a, a professor with U of M? I am. So what, um, I know you, you, you love engaging with patients. Uh, what about being an educator? Uh, do you enjoy, do you enjoy the most? I know kind of in our field, there's this, um, this, uh, I would say a lost art, but definitely this growing, a uh, re-emphasis on, on training and education and really being, um, being someone that that somebody new coming into the field can lean on, you know, the the fire service has such a kind of a, a, at times a, a bad reputation of um, kind of uh, either hazing or just kind of um, you know what they call OJT on the job training and, and you know to some degree um, some difficult intros into the fire service, but but there has certainly been over the past ten to twenty years this certainly resurgence and it's probably you know a good spread of social media um where you really want to just you know work to be be that person that you wanted to have um in the firehouse to show you um show you what you what you should learn and what you need to learn and so mm-hmm. what part of education what part of education do you like the most what and why add that to your to your uh your your, your daily schedule in addition to being um you know in the uh, in the clinic well you know it's really it's it's really fun having somebody who I'm working with who, say for example, I'm teaching them a, a certain technique for doing a procedure and, and they'll say, no, I do, I do it this way. And this works out really well, well for me. And I go, well, why don't you try this way? This is, this is a way that I've been doing it for a long time. I think I've perfected it pretty well. I think this is a lot faster, a lot safer. I feel more confident doing doing it this way. And that could just be me. Maybe, you know, maybe you've developed your own technique or you've learned some other technique and it seems to be better. And they do, and then they do it the way you did it. And they go, Oh my gosh, this is so much easier. Than the way I've been doing it. <laughs> and it's just like that, uh, you know, you get those aha moments where it's like, Oh yeah, this is really good. I can see why you're doing this. And I can see how I could incorporate this as the way I do things. And, and I think that's so important because, you know, at, you know, at some point, all of us are, gonna be on the other side of our work life and you know you hope that the person who's coming behind you is at least as good as you as you are if not better so uh, so so yeah it's a, all of that is all real rewarding yeah that, that that that's so true in the fact that um t- today i'm i'm responding to a, a, oh, a geriatric that fell or someone that uh is sick or injured um, but, but, you know, we, uh, we, we, we can't buy more time and, and with, you know, well, soon enough, uh, you know, we will, like you said, we'll, we'll be in that position where they're, they're responding to me or, or, you know, your students are going to operate on you and your colleagues. And no, it's, it's exactly the, the, the right mindset that you have to have that, um, uh, that develops that, uh, doctor, did you, who, who do you, when you, uh, look at, you know, your career, who in uh, your education, who do you value, um, you know, as a mentor in your education and, uh, and why were they so important? 
Oh, I had I had a number of different mentors in 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 different areas, and um, and they all just you know they all were willing to teach me, and um, and have me gain in the knowledge of you know of their years of experience to then be able to take that incorporate that into my work. You know, none of us when we go when we um, start into a field none of us have any any tools in our toolbox that we can really bring to bear to help us do our work those those tools are are things that we acquire through training and experience and so um i, I was pretty i was you know getting done with medical school i would I would have been a pretty i would have been a pretty use, useless physician working with somebody with back pain. And it was really, you know, the experience of those who mentored me coming through that allowed me to gain the skills that I could then build on to, to build the career that I did. Uh, no, that's, that, that's exactly right. I've shared the same sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, I guess story um, on other podcast was you know when I got out of the fire academy I thought it was great and then a couple of years in still thought it was great and then you do some reading you do some digging and you 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 actually learn and you conversate with with people that are actually experts in in in, in your field and you realize just yeah. how um just how small you uh you really are um <laughs> yeah. you know yep. when you when you're moving forward uh and and you're you're, you're dealing with um uh, your, 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 your patients and your, your, uh, your students, um, you know, where's, uh, I guess where, where's your, where's your mindset at when you're, you're going into work? You know, you know, I'm sure you have some, some, some sluggish days, maybe in the case of the Mondays, I guess, but, um, you know, when, when you're going in and, and you're feeling good, the coffee's kicked in, you know, where's your mindset at when you're going in to teach, uh, you know, teach, teach some students? Well, if if we're in the clinic, my mind is still entirely on on the patient because um, that's that's the whole purpose for us being there. Um, <clears throat> you know, I find that the easiest way to be teaching a student is that when I'm sitting there working with the patient, that instead of letting my brain ramble on and on silently inside my head. And all the things that I normally think about as I'm evaluating a patient, I'll just talk out loud. Um, I'll say, okay, I see that you're standing up in clinic. Obviously, you have pain with sitting, and now I just need to ascertain whether when you sit down, you have pain in your back or your leg, and which leg it is. And but I, you know, I'm just, uh, so I'm just uh, kind of talking out loud. To the to the trainee, so that they get an idea of where my where, where my brain is going in that interaction. Because if if they don't they don't have that that you know that second sense yet, and so they're they're probably not thinking of much of anything, and yet I'm already processing information just walking in the room, looking at the patient, and interacting with them. So so I just talk out loud. Um, and, and that seems to work, re work really well. That's, um, that, that, that's such a, uh, a, a seamless, like, uh, you know, I guess way that, uh, so many of us in emergency medicine, um, kind of, kind of work as well. It's, um, when I, 
when I first started, or what I what I thought um, was was patient care was just you you ob- you obtain this immense amount of knowledge and it just it stays in you and then you walk in and you just understand what's going on and you make a decision and then when you start doing it you you definitely can can tell that that differential diagnosis really just comes from uh conversating with uh with 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 patients and just learning um what they say and i think it's a, a anyone that's talked to a patient um, can know just because you ask the question doesn't mean either they're going to understand what you want to know or how to prioritize what they what they need to tell you. Um, you know, we've we, I know there's thousands of firefighters that will uh, ask someone, you know, what's their what what medical history do you have, and they say nothing, and then you you drop them off to the the nurse the the ED and. And they say, well, I have high blood pressure and I had diabetes and COPD. Mm. And it's like, oh, man, like, why don't you tell me that? So when it comes to communicating with, uh, with, with, with the patient, did, did that come with, with, with skill? Did that come with time? Um, how did you develop um, your, communi- like your communication ability to either um, find out what's going on with them or even how to convey you know, treatment plans? Yeah, I, I think you make a great point. Is that um, you, you really don't under you don't really know when you're interacting with another person what's what is the communication style that they're going to be responsive to, and so I I tend to ask the same question in a different way. So I'll ask them if they have any health problems, but then I may ask them, so do you have a family? Do you have a primary care doctor? And if so, what, why do you see him? What are you going to talk to him about? And then all of a sudden you get a different answer and it's just like, Hey, that, that was a better question for you, obviously, but I, I'm not going to know what that is. So I got to just try out different things. Um, how has it been with your students? Um, do you see, um, in, in, in the, the development of, I would just say social media, cell phone culture, that sort of thing. Have you seen, um, a different form of just person-to-person engagement um, with students, or, or are you dealing with students that are maybe a little more elevated in their uh, their career path? So maybe you kind of see them a little bit more matured uh, in that uh, the, the that person-to-person interaction. Um, uh, some of both. I, I see some of both, and and um, you know what you. What you're talking about, how you talk about it, and, and what observations you make for them is really dependent on where they are. Um, you know, if I have somebody who's already finished a residency, so finished three or four years of training versus somebody in medical school, if I try to talk to them the same way, I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose the medical student. So I, I've got to. I've got to understand where where they are in their learning process, and start by um, by by communicating with them in a way that they'll understand. And that that takes some ex- that as an educator that just takes some experience. I, I think I don't think it's people say well you know you haven't been a medical student in so long or you haven't been a resident in so long you can't really understand what that's like. Or like, you you know, you're a new firefighter trainee, you know, you don't remember what it's like. You know, we're not that old. Well, we, we, we remember what it was like. 
Um, it's really a question of whether or not we're willing to go down to that level. But, you know, if you're going to reach them, you have to. You just you, there's no other choice. In the in the path of your your education and into your profession, uh, what would you say was the best advice that you were given? Um, volunteer for everything. Why is that? Because you you need to gain experience. You you know so much of what when we're talking about you know taking care of patients, so much of of becoming good at it is is getting um, is getting repetitions, getting reps, just like playing basketball. You know how many repetitions of practicing that jump shot? Same thing. And you know, how many repetitions can you get? to get really good at working with patients. And so, you know, volunteer for every opportunity so you can get yourself in there and, and get the experience that's going to make you good at what you do. Um, that, uh, that, that pretty much is where I would love to, to end it right there. I think that was a perfect, Great. I think that was a perfect, uh, a perfect answer. Um, uh, uh, doctor, thank you so much for, uh, giving me your time today. Um, I, 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 I learned so much, and I know that just in the in in the world of of our profession of firefighting, I know back injuries are just so common. And and thank you so much for some shedding some light on just why why things occur, why things are important, and then what what impacts um, you know the the gear and you know our job job uh, has on it. So I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime, Chris. Take care. I want to thank Dr. Anthony Kyoto for coming on and, and sharing his knowledge of the head, neck, and spine and, and how we can better you know, take the impacts of our job, those, those heavy lift assists, those, those grabs, those ladder throws, all those evolutions we do with our bucket and our SCBA on our back. Uh, but also thank you to you also for listening. Um, this has been so fun talking with people, and I, I hope you're getting uh, a fraction out of it that I am. Um, so we'll keep doing it. If you have a guest that you think is cool, if you think someone is, has an interesting story to tell, uh, DM us. Let us know, and, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Um, until next time, uh, do something good for someone. Um, if, if you do some something good for someone today, it will pay dividends for you in the future. So until next time, have a good one. Bye.